0: Welcome to the seventeenth episode of the Film Illiterates podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, <laughs> ill-advised movie talk, fun filtered. Honestly, it would've been great. For the first like five seconds, we already dropped an
1: f bomb. We're already making progress it's, there. It's
0: it's fun filtered. It's 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 wholesome family exactly. entertainment on this fucking podcast. <laughs> I'm your host with the most terrible taste of movies, Joe Campbell, and joining me today is the man with a plan, or so I hope because I sure as hell don't have a plan, Nathan Stone.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody?
0: And uh, we're going to be talking about movies today.
1: Yes, because it's been what, three, four months since we've done
0: a last podcast or something like that, Joe? It's been quite a while. We haven't yeah. had much on the the, uh, the the YouTube channel at all, actually. <laughs> I know, I know. I
1: keep pinging you like, hey, when are we going to do this again?
0: Well, here we are. Here we are.
1: We're here. We're we're living up to our
0: work. We're finally um, talking about all the things, you know, getting up to people's... cankles is that what you said people people get mad at us have you have you looked at our at the
1: comments on some of our videos i have yeah people are such sticks in the mud you know they just don't know how to take a joke sometimes well
0: i mean uh to be fair i'm i'm not the most tactful person but yeah we get a lot of, of hate comments i should do a, a comment comeback video that might be uh might be fun yeah
1: sometime. there you go G- give uh, them a taste of their own money you know just show off medicine, my uh, whatever my
0: further show off my ignorance uh, So, uh, what do guys love more than Tarantino films? Tripped Out Cars, Awesome Explosions, and Dwayne's Johnson. Well, a lot of things, actually, but that's what we're talking about today. On this week's double feature episode, both Nathan and I caught the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we also watched the latest installment in the Fast and the Furious franchise, Hobbs and Shaw. Can we put aside our differences to find some common ground on these two summer flicks and keep our one-liner remarks to a minimum? Who the fuck cares? But that's what we're going to do or not. <laughs> Probably not, but we're going to try. We're going to try. And no, we won't be talking about Dwayne's Johnson because we won't. So sorry. I, I, I think you'll be surprised at how much we actually will be because uh, I got some things to talk about in this movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Same here.
1: Same here. I will actually stoop a little bit lower just to talk about Hobbs <laughs> Shaw. Just for the record, I am not a huge Fast and Furious fan. I kind of Did not really catch up with the franchise until like recently. I mean, I kind of was watching them all the way up until the third one and then I just stopped. And then everyone said, oh, they're really good. Watch them again. And so I gave it a shot.
0: Have, Have you watched all of them by now, though?
1: um i don't think i've seen like the last one that came out before Hobson and shaw so i should probably check that one out yeah well,
0: i've uh, i'm all i'm all caught up but it's been it's been a while katie and i are actually working through the series right now we're uh, as of this moment we're actually halfway through fast and furious which is the fourth movie mm-hmm. so i'm just telling her hang in there till fast five it'll be worth it trust me it'll be worth it exactly but before we get into any of that let's start by talking about what we've watched on our own recently so uh, Nate, do you want to kick this off or do you want me to kick it off today? I, I could probably kick it off. Sorry, um, go ahead.
1: I, my, uh, yeah, the films I've been watching haven't been too many. Um, mostly I've been busy with other stuff, but uh, every so often I will try to get to the movie theater to catch what's new and great. And just recently I saw the latest Spider-Man uh, movie, Far From Home. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Um, one thing I will say about it is I think it's a huge upgrade from the, the first uh, Spider-Man Homecoming uh, as far as like having a good villain and it actually being much more of a Peter Parker Spider-Man story. I think the first one with Homecoming, it was good, but we focused a lot more on just Michael Keaton's character, which was okay. It was great to kind of bring Tom Holland as, you know, this new Peter Parker into the Marvel franchise and and make a movie, a standalone movie that worked with him. Um as far as like all the other Spider-Man movies, it's it wasn't my favorite of them all. I mean, let's face it, Tom Holland's greatest Peter Parker, and I think everyone just that's a huge sell for the movie in general. But I think for me, I guess, Joe, with you and I, we'll always love the Sam Rami one. It's it's a given, right?
0: Yeah, actually, uh, coincidentally, last night, I actually rewatched Spider-Man 2, which is my favorite Spider-Man uh, movie, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. Yeah,
1: I mean, honestly, I think for me, I just I just love how Sam Raimi directed them. It, it, he brought enough um, drama, he brought enough humor and campiness and just a lot of what Sam Raimi does well to make that you know, um, property work. Um, I think this one, especially with this new take on it, it works and kind of sticking to far from home. I think what I liked about this is how they amped up the stakes for Peter Parker. Like they really made this more about like him really trying to figure out his place in the Avengers team. And, you know, Tony Stark is gone. And if you haven't seen end game, that's a spoiler, but I don't care. Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, I liked it. I really liked Jake Gyllenhaal's character in this as Mysterio. I thought he had probably the most fun doing this, especially if there's this point in the second act where this reveal is made. And you could totally tell, like, yeah, this is the reason why he signed on to do this. You can see him like bringing out his acting shops. But other than that, like I thought it was good. The one thing that kind of bothers me though about the movie, and this is just a big one, and I think a lot of people share this as well, is the whole high school comic antics that happen. Like, you know, you have the substitute teachers who are so oblivious to what they're doing on this Europe trip. He has his best friend and him doing his thing, and just all those little antics. And I think for some reason I'm I'm just tired of that. I got really tired of it after like half an hour into the movie i'm like okay can we please move on please
0: yeah i i actually really enjoyed far from home i i i liked it more than homecoming even though michael keaton is one of my favorite villains in the mm-hmm. mcu so far mm-hmm. but i uh, i i don't know something something about far from home i think i think the 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 action was a little bit more interesting mm-hmm. uh i i like i like peter a little bit more in this one for some reason and i can't quite pin uh uh, my 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 finger on it and i'm not sure why because peter Peter parker in these movies he is from a generation that i'm just totally disconnected with and i grew up watching you know the 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 sam Raimi Spider-Man movies which are so wonderfully intentionally campy and I eat that stuff up Mm -hmm. so this this works fine but for me I'm always comparing it in the back of my head to well it's not the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies but it's still pretty darn good Mm -hmm. and another thing another thing that these movies uh the, the tom holland one struggle with is the fact that he is kind of just shoved into a bigger world and there's always that question of oh all this other stuff is going on around him but i like it that they're kind of using him as a palate cleanser in that sense that he is kind of smaller stakes i love jake gyllenhaal in this one he's a lot of fun and what mm-hmm. they ended up doing with 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 him in the whole third act was great it was a big spectacle set piece and uh they 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 got a lot more cerebral with some of their action set pieces which mm-hmm. i wasn't expecting and i greatly enjoyed it so, so some of the most interesting visuals since doctor strange yeah so i quite enjoyed this movie yeah and
1: i think what's really great about this is what made all that work cuz joe i think you're right the, the action of this is actually very very um it's an it's an upgrade from like what we got with the first spider-man homecoming and i think what just made this so um enthralling to watch was you know this technology that what's being introduced, and that's one thing that's kind of cool about this is that they're making Peter Parker's Spidey suit and what he's dealing with a lot more tech, you know, savvy, like a lot more tech centric. Like the stakes he's dealing with, like the obstacles, the antagonists he's kind of going up against are are dealing in a very high tech world, and he has to combat that. And and a, a lot of just like what we see in the second act, as well as in the third act is just a lot of fun and how he is trying to battle that. And I thought that was great. Oh, also, um, really great
0: uh, after credits I was about to say, my jaw hit the floor. I was not expecting that. I hadn't read anything about it ahead of time and I was just floored. Honestly, nobody (laughs) in
1: the theater was expecting that, but it was the biggest homage and the biggest hurrah and the biggest like oh my gosh, what the F moment that we've ever seen in a while for a lot it of these. So
0: happy. I was so happy. I was just giddy during that whole thing.
1: It really now sets a new stage because it's like, uh, it, I, it, there's a lot of possibilities that they can now go with this for the next 10 years of Marvel. So we'll have to see what they have
0: up their sleeve. Yeah, but, I, want, I want more of that.
1: All right. Well, I think I've milked that movie enough. Uh, let's see. The next movie I ended up seeing more recently was... Ari Aster's uh, latest uh, or second horror genre film, *Midsummer*, That was such a trippy movie. Um, Joe, I, I don't know if you've seen this movie yet. Have you?
0: I haven't, in fact, I haven't even seen *Hereditary* yet. I am behind when it comes to my modern horror.
1: Okay, I I have a couple of comments to say about this guy, and I'll I'll keep him very to a minimum because there's a lot I could say about this guy. I like what he's doing with the horror genre because he's really—you can tell this guy knows his horror movies. Like he's delving into like the '70s and '60s, like cult following movies, and there's a lot of just of the occult that he brings to. lot of the story in this and i think there's that it it gives us such a creepy element to this is the fact like you know oh someone could be you know a worshiper of this kind of a cult and you could be totally brainwashed and sucked into this and that was just something that freaked me the most out about this movie is there's not a whole lot of like scare tactics or a lot of like um, jump scares that happen but it's just how it ropes you in to like this, this community and what they believe in, and just how manipulative it can be, and just how these kids, not knowing what's going on, um, or think they know what's going on, or being reassured of what's going on, are so easily becoming victims as they go. It was such an experience, but towards the very end, kind of like with the hereditary, it goes to this other place and you are not expecting and you can understand why a lot of people who are probably reviewing this movie are saying we were not expecting that and it it will it sticks with you in a bad way in a very bad way um, I think a lot of movies that when I was watching this, I kept comparing it to is like The Wicker Man, um, even just a lot of like uh, Ingmar Bergman films as far as the style goes, and really capturing the Swedish landscape. And stylistically, I love this movie. I love the way it was shot, how they handled light, how they handled the set. I mean, it's all just done in this one community, and probably one of the most lucid and most accurate acid trip depictions I've ever seen. Um, in just how they Shot this a lot of like towards the very end, like they just like shoot the the atmosphere in a way that if someone was tripping balls, yeah, this is exactly what they would see. Um, so I I would say this movie I'd recommend for anyone who can tolerate it. If you have a very low tolerance for just like horrific gore and even just explicit sex scenes, I, I would highly not recommend this
0: yeah I again Ari aster is a blind spot for me right now I've I've heard interesting things about hereditary and that the, the ending is very polarizing and it does, that, that makes me more interested to see it uh, midsummer from what little I've heard there's not as much buzz around it now that it has come out mm-hmm. I, I the, the few things that I have heard is, is is basically yeah it's really good but it's exactly what the the trailers kind of sell you on as you know creepy cult movie, yep. more or less, which I'm down for. I actually, I actually watched The Wicker Man for the first time in preparation to see this, and I just didn't get around to seeing the summer. Are,
1: are you talking about the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man or are you talking about the original 1970s Wicker Man?
0: The the, the, the Christopher Lee one, the original one. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I will say this about something about Ari Aster, and, and this is one thing I like about his film so far, um, is how he always has this element of a family tragedy tied with how it progresses this plot line. Um, It's kind of something similar that happened in Hereditary and it happens again in here. And I think there's something I like that he's hinting on and how the victims just open themselves up to these, or because they go through this experience, they're much more vulnerable or just become easier targets for just the horrific disasters that are about to happen. And I don't know, there's something about that that I kind of like that he brings that to his his style. Other than that, his movies go into really weird places. And I don't know, Joe, maybe you should watch Hereditary first before preparation of this. Just kind of know that. Um, Last thing I watched was uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So the Ken Cinema was having a uh, midnight screening of this. And I made the mistake of having way too much beer and not enough coffee going in. And you know, it's it's 2001 A Space Odyssey being screened at midnight. You're going to doze off halfway through of it. But, you know, just watching it again on the big screen. Uh, Joe, this is one of your favorite movies of all time. Um, it's just impressive to kind of think back then they were doing all of these practical effects from, from scratch, even like the, t- the wormhole scene when they're going through space and time, just knowing that all of those lights and all those colors were kind of just made from hand. It's like, that's impressive.
0: Yeah. I, I, I actually thought, I actually thought that you were going in a different direction with that. Oh, I, I, I had too much beer. And I went to go see the movie. I thought you weren't going to say that you fell asleep, but that the, uh, the 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 final sequence the uh, into the infinite sequence was just going to blow your mind completely. <laughs> I mean, I will say, like
1: when you're listening to it with a you know surround sound, it's a huge difference. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was just great seeing that again on the big screen. And I had watched this documentary on um, Stanley Kubrick and how he made 2001: A Space Odyssey just before going into this and you kind of like just take that in and see what's being projected on screen. And it's, it's a reason why it's a masterpiece.
0: Yeah, that movie was the first movie that I, I, I can remember that I really dug it into, you know, what, what does a movie mean? What is going on here? I read up everything that Stanley Cooper had, had written on it. You know, I, I read the, uh, the, the, the original book. I really delved into what is actually going on here on a narrative level, but also on a thematic level. And it, it's it's a fascinating movie and it just it's even though it's long and boring, it never, I mean long, long and boring to 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 a lot of people, it just, it never gets old for me and I love it. Yeah. Every minute of it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So good to see that again at the Ken was good. Um other than awesome. that, that's all that I've watched.
0: All righty. Well, I uh, a couple of things that I watched recently. I watched Juno for the first time this uh, this past week actually. Oh, interesting. You haven't seen that movie before. I had never seen it before. Juno Juno is a 2007 movie directed by Jason Reitman, starring Ellen Page and Michael Cera. It says faced with an unplanned pregnancy, an offbeat young woman makes an unusual decision regarding her unborn child. And I was looking forward to this one because kind of all, all, all Every everyone i talked to has had nothing but good things to say about this movie, and I just for some reason I hadn't gotten around to it. I think it's kind of in a, a genre, kind of the mumblecore mm-hmm. indie comedy, which I've never really gotten into. But I'm I'm glad I did. I think the movie is very honest in its depiction of how teenagers think and and feel. At least you know, back in 2007, from to to, to my knowledge, Diablo Cody's dialogue is a little ditzy. But it seems to fit the tone of the movie, so I was fine with it. I think, if anything,
1: I remember seeing that movie when I first entered into college back in 2007, and I just remember the dialogue is something I think just made it stand out from everything else. I kind of feel like if that dialogue wasn't as quirky, wasn't as off the wall in in its own beat, I don't think the movie would have worked.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's part of his whole identity, you know, all the, the, that's one doodle can't be undid, Homeschool it, all that kind of stuff, which I know drives some people crazy, which- I would understand if the movie wasn't good, mm-hmm. but the movie's pretty darn good. It's 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 one of the few movies where I desperately didn't want there to be drama watching it. I, and maybe maybe part of that's because I I I'm a father, and you know I've gone through the whole. We are having a kid and going up, to helping my wife out through pregnancy and the childbirth and everything. So,
1: so Joe has experienced some PTSD while watching this
0: movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I'm watching this. I'm just like, and, and like, you know, you know, Juno d- decides she's going to uh, put the baby up for adoption and she goes to meet the parents and everything seems to be going well. And I'm just thinking like, please don't let there be any drama. This, this is just a nice little movie to watch right now.
1: Uh, here's one thing I kind of liked about the movie as well is there's a lot of moments when you think, You could be really on the nose with what they're feeling or experiencing, but they use subtext very well in this movie. There's that one part where she's discerning, okay, should I go to the abortion clinic and get this done? And it's just because this one person said it has fingernails. She's like, dang it, why did you have to say it has fingernails now? Darn it. And that's kind of what changed her mind, even though that's probably not what it was the big reason.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of nice little touches throughout throughout this movie. Uh, of, of course, when the drama does hit, that's that's kind of where the movie lost me because they bring in a whole kind of a, a an extra problem with Jason Bateman's character, and it feels like it's kind of coming out of another movie. And I wasn't sure how it was fitting into this one, and I was kind of like, eh, I don't know, I don't know about this. This is kind of a out of left field sort of thing. But the way that everything resolved, I don't feel like I was quite satisfied with because i i get that yes life is messy and i think that was kind of the point of the movie that we had to make the best with the situations were given but me watching this movie i'm just kind of thinking like i don't know if this is the the best thing for all concerned and i i feel like i feel like everyone is just kind of making the best of a bad situation but it didn't feel leave leave me feeling like i almost want to follow up with them you know I, a year or two down the road and see how everyone's decisions in this movie how it's affected them and whether they wish they could go back and do things differently, or how are they going to move forward now? And so, this is a movie that I would have loved to have seen a sequel come out like two years later, but it's a little bit you know late for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of wondering what a sequel to Juno would be about. Uh, maybe when she's like what, uh, like maybe ten years older, and the kid wants to track her down. And actually, wait, oh, th- that, there's a movie that's like that. It's called The Kids Are Alright. Never mind. <laughs>
0: Anyway, mild recommendation uh, for Juno. It does; it gets a lot right. Uh, it rubs me a little bit the wrong way, but for the most part, it's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter turned four this year. I took her to her first movie, which was in th- first movie in theaters, which was Toy Story Four. Uh, but then recently, I took her to another movie. We went to go see Kiki's Delivery Service when oh, it, that's uh, right. it came to our local theater. That's
1: right, because I think uh, during the summer they show a lot of uh, Miyazaki films in the theater. That's right so i guess yeah they're doing that marathon going on so how did she like uh, kiki's delivery service
0: well she'd actually seen it before uh on on video at, at at home so she was really excited to see it in the on the big screen you know having gone to a, a movie theater once before and uh she enjoyed it it's just a happy little movie you know it's this might be the sort of thing that I was kind of hoping Juno would be, which is, oh, no real big drama, but little things here and there, little little hiccups along the way. You know, according to the synopsis, a young witch on her mandatory year of independent life finds fitting into a new community difficult while she supports herself by running an air courier service. So, yeah, it's just this 13-year-old girl who's a witch in training, flying around on her broomstick, trying to deliver packages to people and everybody likes her and she's got a few little social uh, drama you know the, the, there's this this snotty girl who's kind of mean to her and there's this little boy who likes her but she's not into him and it's it just nice little movie it's such a happy little movie and i i think we need stuff like this every once in a while it was perfect for my daughter
1: yeah, it's like you know, it's it's great when you can actually have a a story where there is stakes. You know, there is a chance of losing something, but you know, most of the time, you know, you don't have to make it dark or dramatic like that. Like you're right, Kiki. A lot of Miyazaki's films, if you think about it, are not very uh, drama based. I mean, there's some, but a lot of them are just really to try and capture a, an experience or even just a childhood memory. I mean, that's the one thing I remember always just liking about Miyazaki films, like Kiki's Delivery Service. My Neighbor Totoro, is. a lot of it is just us dwelling in that atmosphere, the forest, even in just in the setting. And sometimes kids need that. They need to learn patience, and they need to learn to appreciate what's around them.
0: And I, I, th- I think in some ways, it's easier for us to really engage with smaller stakes than it is mm-hmm. with bigger ones, because very few of us will know what it's like to have the weight of the entire world on our shoulders but everyone can relate with. Oh no, they're, they need to get from point A to point B. We don't have a car, and it's pouring down rain, and this thing I'm carrying is going to get wet. You know, it's yeah, little more relatable stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's much more fitting for you know kids at that age because it's like you know that's that's really all you do need to care about yeah. is not getting wet when you're going to school. You don't need to worry about a witch that wants to you know take over half the town, and you have the key. It's like. Yeah, they can't
0: handle that. <laughs> anyway, that's a high recommendation for Kiki's delivery service. And uh, finally, I was so I I watched both versions of Little Shop of Horrors recently: the nineteen sixty Roger Corman version and the nineteen eighty six
1: uh, Frank Oz. I keep forgetting that. Yeah, there was a nineteen sixties version of Little Shop of
0: Horrors. Yeah, so I I'd seen the nineteen eighty six version before, fairly recently, and it's become one of my favorite movies it's 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 it, every time i watch it i've seen it 3 times now and every time i watch it it just inches a little bit higher up on my best films of all time list and when i say the 1986 version i mean the 1986 director's cut version with the original ending mm-hmm. which the, the original ending takes the the movie from being great to masterpiece <laughs>
1: <laughs> i know it's 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 so sad when the studio system has to like chop up something that great because it's like you know, all for the sake of like, oh, we want to keep audiences in the theater. We want this to sell tickets. But it's like, yeah, just give it the ending that the director intended it, because that's why they're timeless.
0: Well, that, the whole thing behind that ending is kind of fascinating, because Frank Oz wasn't really pressured to. In fact, uh, during the making of the movie, he was planning on doing the original ending, which is the same as the play, which is basically just a, a very, very dark ending, but a kind of whimsically dark ending, because it's a musical. Mm. And he was going to use that ending and his, I think it was one of his uh, writing partners or producers or someone helping him with the movie, kept on telling him, this isn't going to go over very well with audiences. And he said, nah, it'll be fine. It's the same as the play. And they showed it to a test audience and they hated it. It was, and for this, Frank Oz talking, saying about how much people just, just were just quiet. And they walked out very down about the whole thing. So he uh, agreed to change the ending to a much lighter, happier ending. Uh, He was disappointed about it because there's, oh my gosh, so much effects work in that whole finale. I mean, just tons of practical effects that were lost for years. Mm -hmm. And he was bummed about that. And the people who worked on the movie were bummed about it. But he he knew at the time that's what he needed to do to make a commercially successful movie. Yep. Uh, so I'm glad that we have it now restored. I think for today's audience, they're a little bit more open to something more kind of nihilistically, bitingly, hilariously dark. But it's also fitting to the what happens in the story and with the characters. And it's it's all part of the tone.
1: It's all part of the tone, yep.
0: So Little Shop of Horrors was based on a Roger Corman movie that was shot in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> And um, Jack Nicholson comes in. He he plays the masochist in the dentist office. Uh, Dick Miller is isn't it as as a guy who likes to eat flowers. And it's uh it's it's a comedy. It's it's not very good, honestly. Uh, for a Roger Corman movie, it's yeah, it's okay. It's just kind of boring and cringingly not funny with little bits of hilarity here and there. Uh, I was more interested in it just kind of historically. I'm currently reading the biopic of Dick Miller, Mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite, most beloved actors. uh, And it talked about his role in that movie, specifically in the making of that movie. So I was interested to, to watch it finally. Nice. Anyway, let's move on to our main topic, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then we'll talk about Hobbs and Shaw. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Hill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick stunt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> 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 Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. So before we get into this, I, I just want to give a disclaimer. We will be talking spoilers for both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Hobbs and Shaw. So I don't know when we'll jump into spoilers, but just from the get go, it's going to be a spoiler filled discussion. So you had your warning.
1: And probably at that point, we lost half of our viewers
0: or our listeners. Anybody who's going to watch this, this podcast has seen the movies by now. They probably have. Or one of them. Uh, So, Nate, what did you think about Once Upon
1: a Time in Hollywood? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, um, I don't know how to say this properly, but I think this movie might be one of Tarantino's finest movies, but it's the least of his movies. And I'll explain. I think what Tarantino is doing here is not necessarily making a Tarantino film, even though you can definitely watch it and you can see those trademarks everywhere. Like he has the drawn out scenes, he has the build up tension, he has the ultra violent explosion that happens at the end that just goes crazy. But honestly, if you really look at this, this he's not trying to make you laugh. He is not trying to, you know, give you a memorable, cool action scene, even though there are some peppered throughout it. But what I like about it is that. He is really just trying to give you a look at a time period. He's really trying to give you a look in an era that was dying and being replaced. Um, so the story in a nutshell, Leo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton, who is in kind of like a, an aging action actor and his stunt double, who's played by Brad Pitt, are trying to still find work in the industry when they know they're kind of has-beens, they're washed up, they're not getting the kind of recognition they are anymore. And they're just trying to find their way in this landscape that Once was Hollywood, you know, as they come into the 70s. But there's this whole entire, you know, storyline that's around the actual Charles Manson murders of Shannon Tate. The ending is kind of something I think I'd like to try and get into if we have time, Joe, because I really like what Tarantino does in the end and what he's actually saying throughout the movie. Um, But in looking at it and thinking about it, he breaks away so much from his original style. And I think a lot of that is in the editing. And I think a lot of it is that he wasn't really focused on giving us like memorable lines or memorable scenes with these actors. He's just trying to give them kind of like a look of what this was like. I mean, there's a scene where basically Brad Pitt drives home from, you know, dropping off Rick Dalton at his place in the hills. And he just goes to his trailer trailer where you see, you know, his weights are outside as his bulldog that, you know, he's about to, you know, feed and you spend 10 minutes of him just opening up these cans of dog food and him making mac and cheese. And all of it is really just to capture an atmosphere. But you hear in the background, the TV is playing and all the ads that it's playing on in between like the shows and the cereals. And it's just something that Tarantino, I think this was really what he wanted to show was he wanted to capture that again in a film. And somehow I liked that. That's the stuff I liked about it. There's a lot of scenes of just filler. I call these filler scenes, but it's really just like scenes where Brad Pitt or Shannon Tate or any of the other actors are just driving around town. Literally, all it is is just them driving around town, going from one place to the next. And there's nothing exciting happening in the background. It's just you're listening to the radio, hearing the music that's going on, seeing the landscape. And I think that's really what Tarantino was just trying to show was this was a time period when you had that and it was kind of being faded away as it's being replaced by another era. Well,
0: that's because the, I, I think it feels like that because the movie is primarily a, a hangout movie, much like it, it has more in common with American graffiti than a lot of Tarantino's previous movies. Exactly. Where you are just following people driving around doing doing their thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean there, there's an argument to be made that Reservoir Dogs is a hangout movie with just robbers with a with a, with a, with a, a heist that goes wrong mm-hmm. but it is a heist movie i mean it's 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 people in a scenario under tension or uh pulp fiction which you could argue just oh it's a hangout movie with a couple of hitmen for part of the movie but again there is sort of a, a driving mm-hmm. narrative of you feel like we're getting somewhere as the movie progresses and there is a riot, ra- ratcheting tension mm-hmm. now once upon a time in hollywood the, the, the Manson family subplot, but it's kind of just hanging around and it's not the main focus until, you know, the the, the third act. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the movie is really just watching Rick Dalton and Cliff live their lives and you get to know more about them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is based on revelation of these characters and in, in flashbacks, which, by the way, did you find the flashbacks in this movie confusing because there were a couple of times when I yeah. didn't know that a flashback was starting. I thought it was just next part of the movie. And then all of a sudden I realized, Oh wait, this is actually was a flashback. Yeah. And that was actually <laughs> something I mentioned
1: about the editing of this. This is a reason why I feel like this is the least of Tarantino's films, because there are scenes where I could have seen him keeping together as just one scene. A good example is the Shannon Tate scene. You know, when she's basically, she goes into Hollywood, goes to this little movie theater, watches herself on screen and hearing people react. And that scene is chopped up. It's intercutted with a lot of stuff that's going on with Rick Dalton and Cliff as they go about their day. But I thought to myself, you know, if Tarantino was going to make a Tarantino film, he would have kept that whole Shannon Tate scene as one scene from beginning to end. And that was one thing I was noticing. Yeah, even the flashbacks, they kind of just happened and there was no clear segue. And it's something that's not very Tarantino in style, but it's kind of like, yeah, when they happened, they happened. And you didn't really see it coming or see how it fits in it, but it somehow it kind of
0: fits. Yeah, well, I again, kind of tying back to my thoughts on Kiki's delivery service, I, I think all the Sharon Tate scenes in the theater were some of my favorite parts of the movie. Just because it's watching a woman enjoy her career and enjoy the joy that it brings – her career brings to other people and just getting giddy at the sight of herself on the screen. Oh, yeah. And it's – I mean, I I get that since we're dealing with the Manson family murders and we have to get there eventually – I I, I feel feel like those scenes are kind of for the audience who knows what's coming. They're thinking, oh, no, I I don't want to see what's what Tarantino is going to do with that scene, because we know that he has to go there eventually. Mm -hmm. And because you're just enjoying being with Sharon Tate here in the movie theater, enjoying Seeing people laugh at her antics on screen, mm-hmm. you know?
1: And actually, that was one thing I wanted to actually comment on. I, I think you noticed this, Joe, but um, the way they treat Shannon Tate in this movie is very interesting because we have Margot Robbie who's playing her, and you think they would basically uh, rotoscope and even just CGI her head into the scenes with Shannon Tate, but no they actually just keep Shannon Tate in those actual movie clips from the Dean Martin movie that, you know, she saw herself in. And I found that fascinating because Rick Dalton, you know, they replace his face in all these, you know, scenes. And there's a scene where he's like, oh yeah, I could have gotten this part in The Great Escape. And they put his face in the place where Steve McQueen was and you get in, it's kind of done well, but no, with Shannon Tate, they treated her in an immortalizing way. Yeah, it's, it's it's respectful, very respectful, and and that's actually now something I want to talk about is the ending of this film because I think, in my opinion, th- that ending is literally what this whole movie was is just a build up to. You know, it's going to be the Shannon Tate murders. You know, this is Charlie Manson's family. You're going to go and kill her. You're just building up to it. In fact, in the last act, Tarantino, in his writing. <laughs> Actually specifically makes time codes of like, at this time at night, they're here. At this time at night, then this happens and it's building it up. And I think the big punchline at the very end is they don't end up killing her. They decided to bust into Rick Dalton's house and Brad Pitt and his dog tear
0: them to shreds. (laughs) Now here is the thing: did, did that ending surprise you? No, actually, I kind of saw that was coming. Yeah, I was in the same boat. Especially, I, th- I think if, if I hadn't seen *Inglorious Bastards*, I wouldn't have thought that they'd be going there. But I, but I'm like even since they announced this movie, my first thought was, "Oh, they're going to *Inglorious Bastards*! they're they're going to massacre the Manson family."
1: Yeah, but that's a, that's another trademark of Tarantino's is he does a lot of revenge wish fulfillment endings where it's like he creates this fantasy of like, well, what if we took out Hitler and all the Nazis? Well, what if we took out this awful plantation owner? And he had he kind of re- writes history in that kind of a sense. And I knew he was going to do that. I was just kind of curious on how he was going to do it because, you know, with something like Shannon Tate's death and how it was done with the Charles Manson family, it's a very delicate kind of a situation, which if you do it wrong... It could be very offensive, but I don't know. I thought this was treated very well, only because it does give off this illusion of, yes, this is a fantasy. But even at the very end, where you have like this part where after they kind of kill the Manson family and the day is saved, there's this scene where Shannon Tape is talking to Rick through the intercom. And I don't know, There's something just very immortalizing and very kind of respectful I kind of saw in that, like, you know, I don't know if it was Tarantino just trying to say like, you know, I did Shannon Tate justice with this kind of an ending. I gave her the, the, you know, life that she can still have in this movie and we can have that, but I don't know. I found that tasteful. I found that very tasteful.
0: Here I am flat on my ass and Who who I got living next door to me.
1: I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this. That's me. I play Miss Carlson. The Klutz. Oh! Charlie's
0: gonna dig you. So I, I, I quite enjoyed this movie quite a bit for for the most part. I think I might have a couple of issues with it though, and I'm not entirely sure this is 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 a thing. I mean, on the scale of Tarantino movies, I'm not the biggest Tarantino fan. I've Mm -hmm. greatly enjoyed more or less all of his movies to some degree, some than others. I enjoy them, Mm -hmm. but I'm not like a Tarantino fanboy, or he's not like on my list of favorite directors or anything. Right. So a couple of things rubbed me the wrong way. One was the ending is a lot of fun and very cathartic and over the top and violent. Uh, But there's a little thing with, with Cliff, who is Brad Pitt's character that I'm not quite sure what Tarantino was driving at here, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, in that there's there, there's a running subplot that Cliff may or may not have murdered his wife. Yes. And mm. it's very plausible that he might have. The movie never tells you, but to us, the audience, who's on his side, we think, oh, there's a chance this guy might have actually done this, but we don't know. It might have been an accident. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he did. Uh, but having that question in your, in your head there kind of makes the ending a little less fun because then I feel like we're watching a maybe wife murder just bashing more people's faces yeah, in. Yeah,
1: I was kind of getting a feeling from that when he's basically taking out uh, two of the 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 manson girls in the way he did i'm like oh this is kind of unpleasant to
0: watch yeah and 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 if it it was just something like you know bashing up nazis like good guys bashing up nazis then that's one thing and it's kind of fun uh this though i mean like yes the manson family are are, are murderous monsters but this guy is kind of giving into a darker side that he may have and i don't know how i feel about that either
1: yeah it's it's almost like is uh, tarantino trying to justify this kind of uh character this kind of person's behavior um and and giving it this kind of reward which and to some degree he he does and i mean he kind of does get stabbed and he does get taken out um but but he's a hero everyone (laughs) idolizes yeah and and it's kind of like is tarantino trying to get on the stands of glorifying you know a character like this even though it's the manson family because you kind of put him against the manson family it's like well yeah any. You know, wife killers can be better than the Manson family. But it's like, yeah,
0: you're right. Is he trying to justify this or is he trying to vindicate you know, this well, kind well, of- well, well, I'm just wondering why he brought up the whole wife murdering subplot to begin with because it's very intentional and he very intentionally doesn't tell you what happens. So I would love to hear Tarantino talk about this and how it relates to the end of the movie and why he put all that in there because I'd be curious to hear what his justification is for it because just me not knowing, yeah. it kind of- feels a little nasty.
1: Honestly, and that's another thing, I, I also had a, an issue with this movie, is the writing. Um, as I mentioned, it's the one film I like from Tarantino, but it's the least of his films, because yes, his writing is not the strongest in this. In fact, there's a part in here where you're they're trying to show a passage of time of six months, And he does the laziest thing, which is he gives exposition of what happens to Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth when they go to Italy to film all these spaghetti westerns. And I kind of feel like, oh, Tarantino, you could have done something better than that. But I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if that was just him being lazy on his part or if there's a reason behind it. I'd feel like I'd have to go back and watch it again. But there's moments like that where you're right. He sets up this backstory with Cliff Booth and you don't know if he's trying to, you know, Validate that kind of behavior or if there is truth behind it. But you're right. There's some parts where that falls flat. I, I think another thing people might have an issue with is the, when um, Cliff Booth goes to the Manson family ranch. And oh, I love that scene. That's actually my I, favorite scene in the movie. Actually, I love that scene too. But a lot of people have been complaining about, well, there's this buildup of him going to the house and you want to know what's going to happen. And then it's like, oh, that's that's the reveal. Okay,
0: that's um, why it's so great. It's 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 this is the tensest scene in the movie. All this buildup, you don't know what's going to happen. And imagine how deflating it would have been if exactly what we're expecting is going to happen happens. I think,
1: I think that's another thing that I kind of like about this movie is that Tarantino is actually you know building up our expectations of what we are expecting in his films and giving you something completely different. And I think that's one thing that I liked about this film is that he's breaking away so much from his style. He's able to create some very interesting scenes, but it's not going to be memorable in the same way that, you know, Glorious Bastards or Django Unchained are where it's like there's just such quotable lines. I mean, I'm trying to remember like if there's a quotable line in this or something that people would want to just like hang around and talk about like, you know, everyone does with pulp fiction. There's not a whole lot of that in this. There's and the, uh,
0: uh, my, my, my favorite joke in the movie is the, the, uh, it's called manslaughter <laughs> and, and anybody, oh, yeah, a, anybody yeah, goes yeah, to jail and Lee Lee. kill anybody. It's called manslaughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The Bruce Lee scene. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the scene at the ranch. I love Bruce Dern and his rolling over in bed uh, scene there. I always love, I always love Bruce Dern. He's one of those actors that just brings a smile to my face whenever he pops up on screen. <laughs> And honestly, that uh, was
1: very appropriate as well, just having Bruce Stern. I mean, obviously, he kind of knew he was going to show up because it's a Tarantino film. But I loved how he was placed in that scene and what that scene was all about. Well,
0: that role was originally supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Yeah, he he was cast in that role until he uh, uh, died and wasn't able to... Show wow great
1: right, great right way of bringing this down no actually that. i want
0: to i didn't structure that sentence actually that's something i
1: want to talk about before we wrap up our conversation on here is there's something i like about this movie that tarantino is driving at Hire having guys like you know leo dicaprio and brad pitt who let's face it they're movie stars and they're bringing and they're leading this whole movie all the way through and even like having actors like Bruce Dern or even just revolving around this character like, you know, Shannon Tate, these are actors of the bygone days. And there's this whole melancholy of just, you know, these actors are kind of on their last few legs. They only have a few more roles or movies under the belt and they don't know what to do after that. And it's kind of just capturing that all. And I don't know, that's one thing I kind of liked about that one scene with Bruce Dern and Brad Pitt coming to say hi to him is it's a nice little reflection of that, of like, you know, Old times, and even at this ranch that used to be where we shot movies, but these hippies have like taken it over, and they're just squatting here. It, it's kind of a just an interesting look at this is what Hollywood used to be, and this is what it's become now.
0: Yeah, I will say, I, I'm I, I think in in hindsight, I'm actually kind of happy that Burt Reynolds didn't end up playing that part because I I, I would have felt sad if the last time we ever saw Burt Reynolds on the screen was as a a, a washed up. Movie ranch guy who's just being used by a cult would have been kind of sad. Mm-hmm.
1: I, and, honest, um, and honestly, Bruce Dern, I think, fit
0: that so much better, honestly. Oh, he's he's fantastic in there. Uh, one last thing I want to touch on real quick is uh, another, another minor problem I had with this movie, but it was kind of the first thing that jumped out to me when, as soon as I finished my screening, was when the Manson family subplot takes place when they come up to the house, that movie, up until that point, had been Rick Dalton's story just as much as it had been Cliff's story, and I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Rick Dalton, I feel like he's kind of sidelined at the end. There, it's it's, it's kind of like he you know he spends the whole. F- All of a sudden, the movie isn't about him and Cliff. It's about these murderers and what are we going to do in this one scene? And he's just kind of sitting out in his pool. And then in the the aftermath, he just kind of rushes in with his flamethrower and says, oh, no, Cliff, are you okay? All righty, see ya, bye. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like the movie's kind of taken away from him, uh, especially considered how much investment had been put into his his crisis and him acting with the little girl and wanting to be recognized and feeling like he's a washed-up actor. And to be fair, maybe his arc concluded with going off to Rome and getting married and you can see that as kind of the, the culmination of him coming to terms with where he is in his career and just enjoying it for that. But it just, but the, because the movie keeps going on, it feels kind of odd that his arc concludes, but there's still a whole bunch of movie and something completely separate from him, which only involves Cliff and this cult pops up for the end there. So that's a minor thing for me. Yeah, it's,
1: it's a minor thing. And like I said, I think that might be just the hard balance that Tarantino's trying to show with this world, where he is really trying to show a world of actors that they're going through this, as well as just this dark undertone of, well this is the new generation that Holly was kind of breeding at the time, this Manson family that felt we're going to stick to the man by invading these actors' homes and killing them. It's kind of, it's a uh, interesting line to balance, but I think that also comes from how Tarantino was writing this and a lot of tropes that he is like cemented in his style that he breaks away from. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's no chapter dividers in this. Oh, yeah. Which is something like you kind of think on Afterthoughts like, oh yeah, there were no chapter markers. But I think it's not really kind of like the kind of story he's telling. He's not trying to show a a chapter-driven story. He is just giving us a look of a time that's come and gone and what was being replaced. So I don't know. You're right. I think there is that, that whole kind of like interesting focus change of we don't really feel like that uh, DiCaprio really completed an arc in the end, especially when he just comes in the end like that. But I think if anything, what... I kind of just took away from it is, is this whole world of like actors thinking there are boundaries with what they can play and how they need to be accepted or just welcomed in. And I don't know, I think just at the very end, you're right. It would have been great if it ended on Cliff Booth, but the fact that we kind of linger a little bit more and we see Rick Dalton have this conversation with Jay and Shannon and being welcomed to their home and at three o'clock at night is a uh, I I don't know. I thought it was like a nice little ending. It really kind of showed like, you know, Rick kind of feels like he has more opportunities coming ahead of him. And maybe that's what Tarantino was trying to say at the very end with Rick's character is the world's not going to end for him. This isn't his last horse he's going to ride. We don't know what will happen now that he's being welcomed into Shannon Tate's home. Maybe he might get a role with Polanski. Maybe he might be in Chinatown. Who knows? But I think it loves how it just ends on that note. So
0: Yeah, so I would I would give a I would give a recommendation to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I will would.
1: say though, for anyone who's going to go yeah. see it, make sure you eat something first, and make sure you drink enough coffee before going in, because those three <laughs> hours you feel it, you do feel it.
0: Uh, now let's move into a a quick discussion of Fast and the Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Oh, I think this is going to be more than just quick. We're going to crank this full throttled up, man.
1: Pick a door. All right then. No. That's my door. Pick another door. What's wrong with you?
0: You know what? You were right. This is your door. What's the matter? You got a lot of bad guys behind that door? Lawman Luke Hobbs and outcast Deckard Shaw form an unlikely alliance when a cyber cyber genetically enhanced villain threatens the future of humanity. I had to to reread that, I almost want to say Cyber Lee genetically. That is, and yeah, that is
1: a tongue twister for sure.
0: The movie's directed by David Leach of Deadpool fame, and it is, uh it stars Dwayne Johnson, Jason Statham, Idris Elba, and a bunch of cameos. Yeah, Vanessa
1: Kirby's in it as well, who is.
0: is it, she was in,
1: in, in Fallout, uh, Mission Impossible, if anyone. It also
0: stars Ryan Reynolds and <laughs> uh, Kevin Hart. Oh, uh, what's his? Kevin Hart, I was going to say, who starts with The Rock and everything.
1: That was actually when those two showed up in the movie, I got the biggest gut reaction of just laughs. I mean, just knowing them and just knowing what to expect from them. And just how Kevin Hart just came out of nowhere. He's like, hey, I'm Kevin Hart. I'm like, where? And you're, you know it would have happened, but it's like how they came in, it was just so perfectly
0: timed. So, all right uh i've been looking forward to this movie since the trailers came no. out because i love the trailers and i like hobbs and shaw in the fast and the furious movies they're a lot of fun and uh i i sat down for this movie I was, I, was, I was all hyped up for it and i just kind of got this sinking feeling after the first 10 minutes and it kept going down and this was a late night showing and by the time we get to that third act action scene, I was nodding off in the theater. I was having trouble paying attention uh, during the big action scene at the end. Here's the thing. This movie is just so... Every time Dwayne Johnson and Jason Satham are on screen, they're just shit talking each other. That's all their dialogue is the entire movie. And it's not even really clever shit talking either.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, stuff that 10 year olds would basically be doing, you know, to themselves. So many balls jokes. So many balls jokes. So many balls jokes. It feels like this is like the missing dialogue from, uh, was it Good Boys? That's coming out that the new Seth Rogen film. It's like this is all the dialogue that didn't make that cut. They're like, "Oh yeah, we're going to give it to the Hobbs and Shaw movie instead."
0: Yeah, it's just there 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 there's really nothing to their dynamic other than we're just every line's going to be a dick measuring contest. <sighs> it's just it, literally in, in in many of these cases. Mm-hmm. And it it got old it, it was old as soon as it started. Uh, I think that the moment the moment I realized I was I wasn't going to enjoy this movie because I really didn't enjoy this movie wow, really? very much. You didn't enjoy it. Yeah, uh, it's it's not terrible, but there, I, I was I was not happy a lot during this movie. Oh man,
1: I mean, but it's but, like it's a at the very end with the helicopter and all the jeeps. That's <laughs> when I was falling asleep. I mean, that was like that was <laughs> yeah. what kind of kept me going on when that happened. I'm like, yes, but this is fast and past. The moment
0: that I realized I was I, I wasn't going to enjoy this movie was they do this this thing in the beginning where it shows both Hobbs and Shaw's morning routines and it's, it juxtaposes them with a, a split screen, which is, which is fine. It's a clever little gimmick and it works. And you know, you, you, you see that Hobbs is, you know, he, he drinks eggs and it does all this, all this kind of gritty street level, cool, you know, weightlifting, all that kind of stuff. And Shaw's Jason, Jason Statham, he's doing all these kind of more, Elegant, uh, gentlemanly things. Where he wears a suit, and he has avocado um,
1: toast in the morning, or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And it's like, all right, all right, this this gets the point across. And then they walk into uh, the respective clubs where they're going to perform conduct their hits. a, yeah, perform their hits, basically. And Jason Satham picks up a champagne bottle, and Dwayne Johnson picks up a couple of shots, and you're like, all right, I get it. And then they do this stupid thing where Dwayne Johnson says, I'm an ice-cold can of whoop-ass. And Jason Statham says, I'm what you call a champagne problem. And I'm like, oh, we, we, we got that just from the visual joke like a second ago. But I guess you had to s- tell it to the dum-dums in the theater well, just because you want to be clever.
1: Joe, Joe, this <laughs> is the Fast and
0: Furious audience, okay? There's certain criteria. There's, okay, okay, okay. The, here's the thing: the Fast and the Furious movies. It, some of them have been really dumb, and they they played to really dumb audiences. Uh, the first few, especially, but the the later ones, especially, I, I would say probably five through through eight. There's a difference between being silly and over the top and goofy and treating your audience like they're idiots. Mm. And this movie felt like it, it felt like they thought, oh, we know our audience are dum-dums. So we'll just target it for dum-dums and treat our audiences like they're stupid. Mm. Whereas the first the previous few movies have been like, all right, we're going to drive a car in between two buildings. That's fun. That's over the top. That's crazy. And there's some of that in there in, in, in this movie. But so much of it was just it, it, it felt like jokes where I was like, oh, man, I would hate to meet the person who's just sitting there just being like, oh, he made another balls joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the person sitting next to me was doing that the whole movie. So, I, okay.
1: guess. so he, I, I don't think you can blame the movie for sucking out the fun. I think you got to blame this other person for sucking no, out the fun.
0: No, 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 no. Well, here's the thing. And then, and then uh, Ryan Reynolds comes in and he's just doing his Deadpool shtick. And I was so happy because I like Deadpool and I like Deadpool <laughs> shtick. Yeah. and it was it, it was it was it was I, I realized that it was kind of lazy just to do that here, but I enjoyed that, and so I enjoyed every scene that Ryan Reynolds was in because I like that. But the rest of the movie, I'm I, I'm just literally every line of dialogue between Jane Johnson and Jason Statham is just comparing like, oh, I'm better than you. And I'm going to insult you. Let's think of how many insults it's like, it's like, it's like bad comedies that where the actors improv and then the, uh, the improv goes on for way too long. And you're like, oh, they should have cut out like half these jokes and just kept the best mm-hmm. one in. Yeah. So I mean, that, uh, yeah, I, I, I had lots of problems with this movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, that was one complaint that several people had is that they felt this was pretty long compared to most of the fast and furious franchise movies. Um, uh, and maybe that would get a, You know, helped it if they cut down some of those jokes. So while you didn't like this movie, I found this quite enjoyable. I was enjoying it. And maybe that's also just kind of portraying a little bit of my my maturity level as well. But uh, at at the same time, here's the thing I didn't like follow so uh, religiously with the Fast and Furious movies when they came out. Um, Because I know like the banter, the, 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 the insults that they're passing back and forth. I know that this is also just a trademark of all the Fast and Furious movies. Like they dedicate a lot of time to that. Maybe in the past few movies with the Fast and Furious, from what I understand, Vin Diesel and how he has that with the rest of his crew has gotten better and a lot more refined because they realize, okay, our audience has grown up with these movies. We need to, you know, get to a better level of writing this. Whereas this movie, you're right, it might have just completely backtracked to just that, you know, square one of like, yeah, we're dealing with these kinds of dumb dumbs again, and we're running right for that. But I don't know. I think it's just very self-aware of just how stupid it it is. I think Dwayne Johnson and Jason Stanton realize, yeah, we're just two action-packed guys who are going to be like beating up bad guys and talking shit about each other. But that's what we're going to give. And that's what the audience is going to love. And I love how committed they are to that. Despite how stupid it is, they stay
0: very committed to that.
1: And and maybe that's what I like about
0: it. Well, I, I, think, I, I think part of it also might be what I like to call the, the Ian Malcolm effect, which is in that in Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ian Malcolm, worked great for that movie as a side character. Then along comes uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, the second movie. And I, I, I think that movie suffers quite a bit from promoting his character from a secondary character to the protagonist. And I think he can't carry that movie. And I think we're dealing with a similar similar situation here where Dwayne Johnson, Jason Statham, they're playing pretty much the same characters that they have been playing this whole series. But I think they work better as secondary characters in bits and pieces. So, for instance, in uh, one of them, I forget if it's six or seven, Dwayne Johnson has a scene, I think, where he like, doesn't he like rip like a Gatling gun off of a helicopter and walks around with it on top of a building shooting down buildings or something i don't Pretty remember much yeah that sounds accurate but that worked because it, 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 it you see i remember that scene because it was a highlight of that movie and i was like oh yeah that was the fun scene where dwayne johnson goes crazy and picks up a giant gun this movie is nothing but that and when you have nothing but that for two and a half hours it just really wears down on you and you're like all right where's the straight man there is no straight man in this movie everyone's ratcheted up to 11. I mean, I guess there is one straight man, um, but it's not a man, uh, Vanessa Kirby. I think she plays the straight girl in
1: this. and
0: Sort of. I mean, she's uh, she's toned back, but she's still buddy-buddy chummy. I mean, what we need is a character who can be like, all right, we need to get down to business. This is what we're going to do. Stop stop goofing off, and then they're going to keep goof- goofing off. She wasn't really that. She just kind of was, was along for the ride and just went along with their antics, even though she wasn't on the same level And as at the them. same
1: time, like as I was watching it and I see what they're trying to do with her character, I'm like, you could have had this opportunity to make her that straight character to kind of like bring everyone back to ground base. Let's figure this out. I have this thing in me. We need to get this out. And I'm constantly reminding them about that, which she tries, but you're right. She gets kind of brushed aside. And it's a shame because I think she does some good stuff with her character when she has the chance, but then she kind of just, gets demoted to the damsel in distress scene and it was a problem I had with her she, character She's for sure. she is
0: basically the MacGuffin of the pretty movie
1: pretty much yeah um and um I love Idris Elba Idris Elba was having oh the time. yes you could tell he's, I love how he's like I'm the black superman and he's just like completely just owning that like he is on this motorcycle that's just like changing with him and it's like it's his stuff is really fun to watch.
0: You see, I I think when Eddie's was on the screen, I, I I get that he's having fun. He's just there to all right, I'm gonna play this 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 over the top role and I'm just gonna roll with it, you know. And he does it with this kind of cool, you know, shrug that 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 he has. Uh but then we have Dwayne Johnson, and Jason Statham. Again, I, I, I think their chemistry is one of the worst things oh, <laughs> of this movie, what? even though it kind of makes up the movie. I, I really but but part of that also is because I th- I felt like they were trying too mm. hard. Dwayne Johnson is there just to say, like, "Hey, I'm going to give you a one-liner here. I'm going to give this really fun line." This here comes the next one, and Jason Statham just sitting there, like, "I'm here to to, to say something about God." Projectile vomiting in my eye. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I
1: I guess when you think about it, it's it is kind of it draws too much attention to itself on that kind of an end, and maybe that's something like I guess. You know, it works with someone like Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson, because if it's a size thing, you know, you get the short guy and the big, you know, Samoa guy, and their antics together fit. You're right. With them, they're just too different, and they're not polarizing in the good way. Um And this is kind of opposite to what a lot of people have been saying. Like they say they love this pair and they think, oh, we've been waiting for this for such a long time. And maybe they have, but maybe the writing could- Well, I I love
0: them in the other movies. Oh yeah, but
1: like you said, they're side characters and the focus is not about them. When they come on, they're there for comic relief. To dedicate a whole movie to that, you got to have something- else there. And I know they did try that with bringing the whole family aspect again. You know, Vanessa Kirby is Jason Statham's sister, and they're trying to repatch these things in the midst of this crisis. You have Dwayne Johnson's character who has to go home and repatch things that he hasn't done with his family and, and bring them into the mix to help have them help them save the day at the very end. I thought I was going to like that scene a lot more with them all dressing up in like their Samoan tribe you know, garbs and them like doing the Hakka chant. Just before they go out clubbing these bad guys to death, um, but it didn't have an effect on me. I think you're right. I think towards the end I was kind of like losing it. I was like, eh, it's it's losing steam at that point.
0: Yeah, and, it, and again at that point it was just kind of it, it was it was it was late at, late at night. I I got everything that happened. I didn't actually like fall asleep fall asleep, but I was starting to nod off because I think at that point I just it's two and a half hour long movie and I just wasn't invested in any of these characters beyond a. Oh, this is a fun action scene, and here's another fun action scene. I did feel like it kind of felt like it went on for too long. I remember at one point, uh, there was there's a big action scene, and I was thinking to myself, "Wait, we haven't even gotten to Hobbes's family yet, and I know that they're I know that we're gonna have a big action scene there." I feel like we should be winding this movie up now, but we've got to have at least another half hour mm-hmm. left, right? Right, yeah. Some of the action was fun mm-hmm. though.
1: No, that was actually one thing I loved. And and kind of like, because they're trying to show the parallels with like, uh, this is Hobbs and this is and this is how they do things. You know, there's scenes like, you know, the famous one that we've seen from the trailers is when they're in these uh, corridors and they're taking out these uh, henchmen. We have Dwayne Johnson who just is walking and dragging this big guy that he mm-hmm. took out within like 5 seconds he entered the room whereas uh Jason Statham is like still battling like what 10 different guys and you just see Dwayne just like walking with this guy and he's like dude you going to hurry up so like there's fun stuff like that and even like when the there's a the whole car chase scene in London that I think is just done brilliantly. And that comes to the credit, I think, of the director, uh, David Leach, just because he did do the John Wick movie, the first one, as well as Atomic Blonde. So he knows how to shoot action scenes and and choreograph them very well. Um, And I think these action scenes were just really fun to watch in general.
0: But there's just... uh, Yeah, actually, that... That is one complaint that I've had I've heard a lot of people say is that the action was too chaotic and shaky. I I didn't have that problem yeah. with it. I, I thought it looked Yeah, fine. At, at
1: least like you know, there's that one scene where Idris is crashes through a double-deckered bus and it's all kind of like gives the illusion it was just done in one take. I'm like, okay, that's that's impressive. That's the kind of stuff I like to see. Um but I think it's like towards the very end, I think the action kind of started losing me because I don't know, it kind of pulls off a similar yeah, fast and furious moment where it's like five cars get all hooked up together to bring this helicopter to the ground again. I'm like, Yeah, and we've seen that before.
0: <laughs> we've seen that before. Which is weird that we can say that, uh, in in twenty nineteen. Yeah, we've seen we've seen ten cars bring down a helicopter before. What else you got? Yeah, but these are Samoas. It's like, Yeah, but we've seen it before. We 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 are uh not easily impressed in this in this day no, and age. We're not. You know, you know, it, Imagine back in the in the eighties, Yo, dude, we hooked up ten cars to a, a helicopter. Oh man, that's look look great. Nowadays we're just like, yeah, what else you got? What else you got? <laughs> uh, I I wish that uh, uh what's her name, uh, Gonzalez from Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. I wish that she was in more of the it, movie. She that was would be great. nice. Yeah, that would be nice. I, I hope Ryan Reynolds comes back for future movies because I like I
1: like his Deadpool shit. It's fun. fun. I think you know what's hilarious about that is. Um, I think they literally just hired Ryan Reynolds like, hey, can you come in? We do not have lines for you, but can you just like just ad lib on the spot? And he's like, sure. Yeah, just give me a camera.
0: Can you just play Deadpool? And
1: he, that's <laughs> what he's going to be for the rest of his life is he's going to just Deadpool every single movie he's in. And
0: hey, it's better than
1: being Green Lantern. That is true. And he will continue to call out to that movie as well as Wolverine X-Men Origins. <laughs> Uh I you know, you gotta appreciate also someone like Ryan Reynolds, who's gone this far in his career, but he is still willing to make fun of himself. And that's one thing I did like about this movie is that I think Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham know they're a shtick. They know they're a shtick. And they're gonna gonna continue doing that just because they know that's what the audiences pay their tickets for. And I think that's the one saving grace, at least in this movie, is like. They give what the audience was hoping for, which is Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham calling each other their dick names and kicking ass.
0: That's basically what they brought. That's what they delivered, and I applaud them on that. Yeah, they certainly delivered it. Not my, not my thing. At least not for a full, full, full movie. Maybe if mm. it was shorter, maybe I, I, I wouldn't have felt this strongly about it. And again, I, I didn't hate this movie. No, I, mean, I mean, I, I think, I think on Letterbox, I gave it like a two and a half out of five stars. That's pretty low. Uh, <laughs> well i mean it's not i mean three is technically positive so mm-hmm. two and a half is like right there in the middle so it, when when i graded this movie i just kind of thought oh, it, was, it had a lot of cool action scenes and uh, there there are a few moments that made me laugh but just overall i i did not as someone who enjoys a lot of the fast and furious movies i this movie just did not do it for me um yeah,
1: I don't know why. Maybe you just needed some uh, of those what applewood cigarettes that DiCaprio was advertising <laughs> at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which, by the way, let me just say, I actually love the fact that the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ended
0: on that note. I am I am not a smoker, but that 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 commercial made me wish I was. <laughs> you could look just
1: like DiCaprio if you smoked this.
0: <laughs> he he made those cigarettes look damn uh, appetizing. I got I gotta say. <laughs>
1: Actually, you know oh, you what know the, you know the actual commercial ad in there that got me the most was at the very, very end of the credits when they played the Adam West Batman Yeah, That was fantastic. I was listening. I'm like, oh, thank you, Tarantino. That brings me back. So,
0: Nate, I presume you would recommend Hobbs and Shaw?
1: I think like if if, if that's something that, okay, so like if you saw the trailer and you said, I want to see that movie, you're going to get that movie. Literally, it's in the trailer. It's going to deliver on that end. I, I don't think it's going to give you anything you weren't expecting. It's not going to give you something that, oh, that was a weird 180 that we were not expecting. No, it's it's going to deliver what you saw in the trailers. And I would say if, if that's what you want, yeah, go ahead and give it a shot. If you love Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham and that's everything that you wanted to see in this movie and nothing else, yeah, go ahead and give it a shot. Um, but I think, you know, for me, I guess because I didn't really grow up with the Fast and Furious movies, a lot of the stuff, Joe, that you said, okay, this was done better in Fast and Furious 5 and 6 and 7. Yeah, maybe. But for me, I I enjoyed this. And maybe it's also because originally a friend and I were going to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they are sold out. And so we were like, well, what's the next best thing? Oh, Hobbs and Shaw. Well, okay, we'll do that. And so maybe my expectations were lower for this movie and maybe that's why I enjoyed it more. Well, there you go. That that
0: that, that always helps. I've i found to- Yeah,
1: just realize it's gonna be shit and it'll be just good shit.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh that'll be it for our once upon a Hobbs and Shaw in Hollywood episode <laughs> of the Film Illiterates podcast. I really hope that's gonna be the title of this episode, Joe. That would be <laughs> as of right now. Unless I, I, I can think of anything better, which I probably won't be able to because I'm a lazy bastard. Uh, uh that probably will be.
1: Honestly, I think that just that's perfect right there. Just keep that title as is. No edits.
0: Uh, Nate, where where can people find you?
1: All right. Well, you guys can follow me on Instagram at uh, Nathan Stone Films. Um, you can also find me here at uh, Film Literates. I do these podcasts with Joe and Alex, who is not here with us tonight. We should mention that at the very beginning. I was actually really hoping he was going to be part of this talk because if there's anyone who's a huge Tarantino fan, it's him. We'll have
0: to bring him on when he uh, catches it on Blu-ray cuz I guarantee you he's not going to make it out to the theater. To <laughs> Honestly,
1: it. he is the one person who's always behind on the times. Um we actually need to give him a, a, a what was it? Like he listens to a lot of music, so we got to give him a music podcast one day, you know. Give him this music mu- music episode. Yep, and we'll be the ones who
0: like, "Oh yeah, we didn't listen to the album. Sorry." <laughs> I don't I, I don't listen to anything any anything newer than 1992 <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of true actually <laughs> Well Joe where can we find you then uh, you can find me on uh, Film Illiterates, uh, or at Film Illiterates on, on Twitter. I also run the Film Illiterates Facebook page, but I'm not as active on there. And you can find me on Letterboxd if you look up uh, film underscore illiterate. You can uh, follow up. I blog everything I watch on there, so you can uh, see my my terrible taste of movies and everything all, all my hot takes. So many hot takes. Lots of hot takes. At Lots. least they're not like
1: uh, hot cakes, which is what Dwayne Johnson eats in this movie. A huge I- <laughs> freaking stack of them.
0: Do we see him eat any of those or are they, they just pile up like, like a two foot tall pile of pancakes in front of him?
1: I, I think it's a given that everyone knows Dwayne Johnson
0: eats that many pancakes in one sitting he can not you think those were real pancakes or they just like 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 fabricated like plastic pancakes i guarantee you
1: probably that's like that was his meal for the day so like yeah just give me a full stack i'll, I'll just eat here on set and it's like okay <laughs>
0: Anyway, uh, tune in to YouTube.com slash Film uh, Literates to keep up on every, all our videos. Uh, go, go through a backlog. We've got a lot of great videos to make you very angry because we didn't like some uh, uh, classic movies that you may have liked.
1: What is one that people give you so much shit for, if you don't mind me asking?
0: Oh, one of them is uh, uh, Repo Man because uh, Alex and I just did not we, – we weren't on the same wavelength as that movie. And I, I enjoy Ripple Rip, Mind quite a bit, but I don't think it comes across as we liked it very much in the video. I mean, I honestly, I give you guys a break for that because that's
1: like one of your first ones as well. So you've you've grown better. It was earlier
0: there. Uh, Boys from Brazil, we get a lot of shit for too. Really? Uh, but that one just kind of like, anybody looking for a Boys from Brazil review is going to love it. And I, I I do like that movie. But again, that's one that I think we talk about the negatives more than the positives and we come across as being down on it even though i actually do really enjoy that movie honestly people need to get thicker skins man thicker skins (laughs) yeah we're, we're, we're we're having fun here we all have fun yeah anyway uh everybody keep watching movies and keep it easy